Thank you for joining me today and we're having this chat to preserve your own memories of the mental health and arts community in Scotland. Uh, the discussion is being recorded um, and you'll have the chance to listen back to this recording, make edits and approve the final version before it is transcribed. Uh, we can stop the interview at any time if you feel the need to. This can be for, for any reason. However, you are entitled not to give a reason. This also includes muting and stopping the video uh, if you need to. Uh, okay. I'll be asking the questions and as this interview is about you and your memories, I will be as silent as possible during the answers, but I am still listening. And you said that you had the chance to read the information sheet and sign the consent form and recording agreement. Is that correct? That's correct. Brilliant. That was easy then. So just to start us off, can you tell me your name, the year you were born and where you grew up, please? I'm, um, the year I was born was 1944. I was born in Illinois in uh, Abraham Lincoln country, Southern Illinois. And I grew up in California. I left there when I was about one and a half or two and grew up in California. I left California in 1964, probably before you were born. <laughs> um, and what is your professional or working background? Uh, I've never had a job in my life. Uh, <laughs> I retired when I was about 18. Uh, <laughs> And I've been self-employed ever since, and I've had many jobs, uh, including working as a trainer in communication skills, teaching doctors and nurses, and I've uh, done all sorts of work as a trainer, as a teacher, as a, I'm a Tai Chi teacher, have been for since the last 30, 40 years as well. I, I, every, I do little bits. I'm a publisher um, as well, and I'm a writer, um, so yeah, all sorts of professional things that I've been involved with, yeah. I, including research into mental health. <laughs> Perfect. So what was your first role within mental health and the arts? Um, first role within mental health and the arts? Probably um, in London uh, when I started an organization called Playspace, uh, working with families uh, and playing in parks and all sorts of places, adventure playgrounds, streets, creating street theatre and working, setting up a theatre company called Matchbox Theatre which toured hospitals and schools, particularly special schools but also like uh, family units in mental hospitals, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so was Playspace and Matchbox uh, two different organisations or were they connected? They were two different organizations. One arose out of the other. Playspace uh, Trust started first as a charity and focusing on play, particularly play therapy, uh, using all sorts of art forms. But then uh, we got very interested in theater work and performance work with children and with families. And, that's, and the theater company arose out of that and became its own charity as well. Okay. And what year was it that you uh, set up Playspace, sorry? Probably around 1970. Oh, okay. And um, it rose out of my work at Sydney Webb College, where I was uh, training to be a teacher. Right. And, and uh, yeah, sorry. No, sorry, carry on. Mm. Yeah, it just arose out of a, a group of us who were enjoying the idea of learning through play. And, and um, there were, we were mature students at London University. And, and just we just got together and we just started playing together and inviting children to come and play with us and families. And that's when Play Space started. 
Uh, firstly, it was just an informal group, but then we started getting invited into prisons, into hospitals to do work. And we would go into a hospital, for example, and we would work in the back ward of long -term, with long-term patients, and we'd invite staff to come in, and we would say to staff, if you, if you feel what we're doing has some strong effect on the patients in a positive way, we would like you to commit to a training program. And that's when we started doing training courses for staff, uh, when they would see that the work we were doing would wake up patients to a point where they were enjoying themselves and interacting, that then they would uh, say, well, you come back and you can teach us how to do it. Wow. And so what um, constituted the, the, the play then in the hospital and, and prisons? Well, it was based on cooperative games. Uh, we would create, we made up our own games. I, I published a book called Games Games, which was funded by the National Playing Fields Association at the time. And it was aimed at uh, tr helping people create their own games. After about 60 games, uh, there are always variations on a theme. And they were all sort of cooperative games related to movement, to dance, to drawing, to writing, you know, uh, music songs uh yeah oh, wow and so did you find that the 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 games or the activities that you did within hospital and prisons differed from what you did with the families or was there actually a, a similarity there there's a similarity that obviously they would the, the goals were different you know like when i worked at the uh, a new careers project in bristol were for young offenders uh, the goals ha obviously had to do with assertiveness well-being, resilience training, that sort of thing. Whereas with families, it might have been just having fun with your kids. Mm -hmm. And finding different ways of having fun and different, you know, a lot of times parents didn't know, uh, well, how do I play with my children? You know, what sort of things? And it's giving them a bigger, a wider repertoire and more media to play with, different mm -hmm. art forms. And was there discussions within those uh, activities or times that you spent with the families or prisoners specifically about mental health or was it more about uh, a wider idea of well-being? Or It was probably more a wider idea of well-being, although mental health certainly came into it when we worked in psychiatric hospitals and, and uh, daycare centres and that sort of thing. And how, how did it come into it then? Why was the discussion different that you found? Well, because it was more linked to, to a, a therapeutic approach. Uh, and at that time, I was working with an organization called the Center for Therapeutic Communications. So it had much more of an overt goal to do with uh, therapy and, and particularly looking at how people help themselves, more like self-help type therapy rather than um, having a therapist, so, right. so to speak. It was more looking at how the arts and creativity can enhance your own uh, well-being and deal with issues that you're, you're having. I was trained in psychodrama as well and drama therapy. So I'm a, I was trained drama therapist as, as well. So that was another, um, if you asked my question at the beginning about profession, I was one of the founders of the Drama Therapy Association. Right, okay. Sorry, I'm scribbling away here so I don't forget <laughs> things as well. I'll come back to it. Yeah. Um, and so Matchbox, Box Theatre, you said, uh, came from play space and was that uh, due to your experience with drama therapy as well then that you went down? Yeah, the yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were recognised. We, that was funded through the Inner London Education Authority as well. Uh, and it was particularly focused on special needs schools. Mm -hmm. 
but we did work in other places, in prisons and in hospitals as well. Okay. And what was the aim of the Matchbox uh, Theatre Group? Well, the aim was more therapeutic theatre. And, and for example, we would go into a, a big hospital. Uh, it was at this in um, Surrey somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was. And we would work both with staff and patients. So they were looking at the interface between both and how, for example, a lot of the, the um, low-grade staff who were like uh, carers and that sort of thing were from ethnic backgrounds from West India or whatever. And they never thought about bringing their, their drums out, their music, etc., into... They could, never thought of it as something they could do with patients. And because we came in and created things like a kazoo band and a procession with drums and encouraged them to get out and join in with us, that created a, a cultural shift in the hospital so that those people could start bringing in their own culture into the hospital and with the things they did with the patients. So we were looking at... Uh, not, we were looking at both working with patients, which we were doing, but we were also working with staff and looking at enabling staff and empowering staff to bring their creativity into, their, into the workplace. Mm. And was there, um, did you see that, that, that working together like that with staff and patients kind of uh, maybe softening that divide had a positive outcome on the patients specifically? Well, that, that was our experience, and, and, and so, sort of with follow-up activities, it became obvious, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, okay. And have you got some, any of your kind of favourite memories or memories that jump out of you from that time when working in play, with play, at PlaySpace, sorry, and... Uh, I think one of the strong memories was working at Normansfield Hospital, uh, which where I was invited in to help them re-establish the... Um, the farm and and but also establish an adventure playground for patients this is a what was then called a subnormality hospital they've obviously re renamed these things and um the, my strongest memory is i brought staff together from all the wards and started planning together how to how to create this and what i found out was that they they did they hardly once they they'd hardly met each other They've been sort of, you know, it was a big, one of these big hospitals. And, and meeting each other and doing some interaction games with them as well to get to help them get to know each other and me to get to know them, I found out that they were really disheartened and as a, as a staff and really uh, fed up. And all they could talk about was their senior consultant who they just hated, who, for various reasons. And... I had to ban talking about him from these meetings because he be they, it, it became too much. They get, that's, because they never got together, they didn't realize they all had the same uh, problem. And I banned it and I said, look, either you kill him or you, or you, or you, uh, go, uh, you go on strike or something, but we're not going to talk about him anymore. And they agreed to that. And so eventually we got the uh, playground going and got the thing set up and a lot of creativity happening. And then two years later, I got a phone call asking me, would you appear in court for us? We, we have gone on strike and we're suing. We're, we're actually, uh, they got rid of the guy, the consultant. They managed oh, wow. to get rid of them. But it was through my suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the, one of the most 
in, in a way, the most impactive memories that I have. And it was simply through creative play of bringing them together and they started communicating with each other that they realized they were facing the same problem. Mm which was somebody who was over-drugging patients and doing various other things. And he got, he got uh, what do you call it, when scored off the register or whatever. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was one, one fond memory. I mean, that's all, uh, I mean, I've been in, in Scotland working in mental health since, oops. Oh. I dropped my ear thing. Oh, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, since uh, 1981. Okay. So I've, I've worked here as well. And what was your first role in Scotland or what was it that brought you to Scotland? Uh, well, uh, what brought me to Scotland was uh, I had set up what was called the Diorama Arts Cooperative, which was bringing together all sorts of um, community arts organizations, including people like uh, Ronnie Lang and the Philadelphia Association and uh, Natural Dance Workshop, uh, musicians, music therapists, and we were, we were all doing things together. It was where we Matchbox Theatre rehearsed. The first uh, disabled theatre company formed there, Grey Eye Theatre. They, they actually uh, was, were there, but it was a squat. It was short life property and we had to appear in court. We campaigned with the, uh, it was a very beautiful building. It was the first cinema in Britain and in just inside Regent's Park, beautiful building, and they were going to t take it down. It was up for redevelopment, but we managed to get it preserved and got rehoused eventually after about 10 years. But I was the warden there living at the top, and we had a child by then, a one, about a six months old, a year old, and we were having to go to court a lot, and we decided we, we needed to get out of there. But we were also people holding the property because they couldn't evict us because we were a family. There were mostly artists and, you know, of various sorts and community magazines, and that sort of thing. In the, there was 80 rooms in the building. Uh, not one of them was a rectangle because <laughs> there was a huge cupola in the middle with an, uh, an octagon with a 50-foot high ceiling, which was the previously the Middlesex Hospital Hydrotherapy Department. And were all these artists people that you had uh, worked with or knew from the arts community in London at the time? Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. were uh, a lot of them involved in arts and mental health or was it a wider... No, a lot of them were involved in arts and mental health, yeah. Right. Not all of them, but certainly quite a, quite a large proportion of them. And it wasn't exclusively arts and mental health. They were also involved with other arts activities as well. Mm. But certainly all of them had that as an aspect. They were community artists um, with often working in, in places like we were working in hospitals or prisons and places like that. Right. And doing a lot of street work as well with young people. Okay. And so the grey-eyed theatre group that you, you spoke about, sorry, they were people that, ha had, that lived in the same uh, building as you? They didn't live in the building. No. I was the only, we, officially, I was the only family that lived in the building with right. my wife and our son, right, uh, okay. but we had been, I squatted it on my own uh, as an empty building and then gradually drew people there. By that time, Play Space and Matchbox had already formed, but we didn't have a space. We were meeting in the, what is now called, what was called then the uh, Polytechnique of Central London. We had offices there and stuff, but we were losing and we were renting rooms there as well. But so we ended up, that became our first premises. Uh -huh. 
And so was it hard to get space for um, arts and mental health organizations such as you? Very hard, yeah. 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 And so... We um, had to piggyback on larger organizations. All right, okay. So, such as? Well, uh, the, like the Poly of Central London was one of them. Um, Middlesex Poly. There were some of the bigger organizations. Some churches would let us use their buildings. We, um, yeah, there was a whole variety of different organizations which would let us work with them, yeah. Mm. And how, uh, when, I mean, one, sorry, oh, sorry, I'll carry on. So, like, you know, one of the prison service and the probation service were very supportive of the work I was doing. I helped set up an alternative to prison in Camberwell uh, and uh, where they would have, they, they would have three months intensive work uh, on themselves and they had a choice. They could get a six months custodial sentence or they could choose this three months intensive and the intensive they could live at home but they had to come in every day for this and, they, and I was part of their the program of teaching communication skills. We had a pottery, we had music, we had all sorts of things. So it was an intensive program of reorientation for these uh, recidivist defenders, repeated defenders, and a lot of them had mental health problems. It was quite clear. Right. Um, but we set that up and it was, it was interesting because at first we didn't get that many referrals and we wondered why. And because the courts weren't quite believing in it. So we invited some of the top judges and a few of the politicians to come to a meeting with us. And I did a bunch of games with them. And, and what we do at the center, at the, it was called the Day Training Center. And, uh, and, I, we had, and I got some of the people who were our clients or prisoners to come into those sessions and play with these people with a, on first name basis. And uh, there was one particular incident where I uh, was doing a sort of milling game in which there wasn't enough chairs for everybody. And so what happened was that some people, like a judge, would end up s sitting on the floor next to a prisoner who's sitting in the chair. <laughs> and they would be communicating with each other. And you could t feel gradually over a two-hour period the barriers breaking down between these people. And at the end, at the end, but at the end, it was interesting to see how they had to reestablish their, their traditional roles. You know, like the, the judge would say, I don't want to see you in my court again. Or, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, <laughs> sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we ended up getting a lot more referrals after that. And so do you think that was due to uh, a lack of understanding around mental health and how the arts can impact Exactly, it? yeah. Okay. I think that they didn't realize how powerful the arts can be in terms of rehabilitation, mm. particularly for these young offenders who were recidivist offenders in and out, in and out. And so how long did uh, you work there then? At the, is it Camberwell? You, you yeah, it was Camberwell Day Training Centre, it was Day called. Day Training. Yeah, how long did you work there for? Then? Several years. I, I, I handed on the work to other people after a while. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I, I think when I left, it was probably from around 75, 76 up to 81 when I left. It's, it was, I'm not sure of its history now or where it stands. And uh, sorry, so what, what in the end did bring you to Scotland? Was there um, a specific... Well, it, we were having, to, we had a baby right. and we were having court cases and we were appearing in court. And even, even after arriving in Scotland, I would go down for court cases because we were still registered as the, the address at the, at, at the Diorama Arts Cooperative. Right, okay. Uh, so we came because 
Uh, well, it was a misunderstanding, actually, <laughs> between I'm... me and my wife. <laughs> oh, right. She was a mu she's a music therapist and done a lot of work in mental health as well. Ah, oh, okay. And she worked for, she, she was the manager for Glasgow Association for Mental Health for several years. Ah, oh, okay. But, I'm uh, yeah, I'm we, so... we, we came to Scotland because she's Scottish. Right, okay. And grandparents lived in Edinburgh. Ah. So. And so then when you settled in Scotland, what was uh, your first role here within Arts and Mental Health? It was working at a place called the, Day, the um, St. Enoch Centre in the Gorbals. And that was working with uh, uh, people addicted to tranquilizers as well as people addicted to heroin. It was sort of different groups. And my official role was called uh, a skills instructor, part-time. And that could include everything. <laughs> I, did cre I did cooking with them. I did uh, movement with them. I took them to outings. I, you know, we, we did games. I did assertiveness training with them, communication skills, uh, right. painting. I'm trained as a visual artist originally. So that was my, my ground, my, my foundation training was in visual arts. Right. And uh, again, so was that, a, did you say a rehabilitation center or was it it, more it of was a, a It was a rehabilitation center in the Gorbals and it was called the St. Enoch Center. Right. It was a voluntary organization. Oh, okay. And uh, so the work there was trying to um, rehabilitate, rehabilitate former addicts uh, back into their lives yeah, and community. Yeah, just get them into recovery. Right. You know, it, like uh, some of them were still uh, strongly addicted. And mm. uh, our, our aim was to, we had a detox center as well out near Helensboro, right. uh, which was residential as part of the project. We also had a, uh, a housing officer because trying to get people out of their, um, with their living situation into a different situation where they're more likely not to be associating with other, other users. Okay. But there was also people who were um, more uh, strictly mental health issues and were, were, had become addicted to tranquilizers particularly. Right. Uh, I was working with a, with a group with one of those groups as well. Okay. And so, how um, how long were you there? Were you there at the St Enoch Centre for? Uh, probably about five or six, seven years, something like that. Uh, right. It it's it. it um, I think it lost its funding or something. I can't remember the exact story. What happened? I ended up establishing a small uh, self help group which I led initially, and it was called SHARE, which meant uh, uh, self-healing, uh, assertiveness, uh, it's an anagram, assertiveness, relaxation, encouragement. <laughs> and so that was after uh, the St. Enoch Centre lost its funding? Yeah, I ended up, that carried on in the Gorbals through... Um, through the Community Education Centre in Govan Hill. Okay. And that carried on. And we, we, met, we met in an old church there, St. Enoch's Church. Sorry, missed that there. My headphones popped out. Yeah, we, yeah, we used to meet in St. Enoch's Church. Uh, they, the church let us use there as a main meeting room. We met a couple of times a week. And it ended up taking off. And I left the group, but it continued for many years. Uh, it was a user-led group. 
Right, okay. And uh, how was it that you uh, originally uh, found people to continue coming to the self-help uh, group share? Was that off the back of people that were still attendance in Enoch's when it had Yeah, that's right. Funding? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then uh, after that, uh, how did you, how did more people attend? Was it just word of mouth? Or? Word of mouth mainly, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And, and we had a limited number. We kept it to about eight, ten people just to keep it so that you had an intimacy about it. And we had certain ground, ground rules to do with confidentiality, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, and during that time, as well as your time in London, uh, how do you feel that mental health was viewed by the general public? <laughs> um, well, around during that period, and, and I, I helped organize an exhibition in Kelvin Grove Art Galleries uh, called Out of Sight, Out of Mind, which was the history of psychiatric care in Scotland. And it was um, curated mainly by um, a guy who's now the uh, direct artistic director of the Center for Contemporary Arts. And his name's just got out of my head. It'll come back to me a minute, in a minute. But I, he asked me to curate the area to do with poetry and arts as part of the exhibition, and which I did. And by that time, I had established an, an, a new organization called Survivor's Poetry, and uh, out of which came out of the share group as well. There were several share members who joined Survivor's Poetry. And it was looking at poetry and mental health and people writing uh, into well-being, to writing about things that bothered them and knowing that that would uh, help them. And it was also to do with mental health advocacy as well. Mm -hmm. And at the time when we were curating this exhibition, um, God, what's his name now? I'll, I'll remember it in a minute. He came, came up to me and he said, look what I found. And he, they were, at that time, it was, if you may or may not be aware of this in the history of mental health in Scotland, there was the hospital closure program going on. And it was called Moving Towards Care in the Community. And we were, uh, he was being, having access looking for stuff to exhibit, to archive material, and including, he found a lot of uh, poetry and, uh, and other writings in patients' files. And he started investigating, why are they in these files? And uh, eventually he found out they were there as evidence of their madness. And, and I think that says something in answer to your question. Mm -hmm. This was not that long ago that, you know, people were fearful and, and you know, and they would keep these writings, which were actually probably therapeutic writing, but they would keep it as evidence that they were mad. And it was interesting because when I started my first um, expressive writing group for people with mental health problems, uh, it was called The Power of Words. And it was through the Glasgow Association for Mental Health that I was doing this as a sessional worker. And at the end of each session, this was initially, uh, people would want me to take their notebooks that they'd been writing in and keep them because they didn't want to take them home. Mm -hmm. Because if they took them home and somebody saw them, they could get sectioned. And I, my sense is that was really strong. And that was before the See Me campaign and things like this all started. But that was, at that time, it was just still such a strong 
uh, taboo about really uh, opening up and allowing yourself to share your innermost feelings on, through words or through images or through music uh, because of a fear of being sectioned. Mm. Uh, so, and, and that, that attitude hasn't entirely shifted yet. I think there's lots of campaigns that are still around trying to shift it, but it's still there. There's mm. still a huge uh, mental health, um, mental ill health taboo and uh, stigma around it. Yeah. And how often did you find that uh, people spoke about their own mental health, not just, not obviously within the groups, kind of more specifically in, uh, in day-to-day life? Well, I mean, uh, my, my experience with most of these people was that they were coming to groups in which they were encouraged to talk about it. Mm. So, uh, and to what extent they took it home, I'm not sure <laughs> entirely, but certainly we were, uh, with survivors' poetry and things, we were, we were talking about it all the time and bringing it up all the time and using the arts as a sort of surrogate, as a way in to, to open up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And people would be surprised. They would, they would write something and then they would read it aloud to a group and then they would surprise how much they would burst into tears in the middle of it and they'd wonder why. And I would encourage them, well, read it again and then read it again. Because sometimes that, that reaction is that that's the power of the words. And sometimes I would get them to circle that bit of, that they've just, which had the emotional reaction. I say, use that as a starting point for another piece of writing. That'll take you deeper. And, and, you know, and I think that um, one of the things I did um, after working with Survivor's Poetry, we had funding from the Greater Glasgow Health Board regularly for staff uh, for several years. And after a while, they were questioning our funding. And they said to me, how, how, why should we continue funding you? So they commissioned me to do a piece of research called Arts on Prescription, which I did for uh, probably two or three years. And I went and looked for the best practices throughout the world, throughout the UK and then throughout the world as well. And, and I visited America as part of it and, and visited various projects all over. And, you know, that, that whole sense of the arts um, and I did publish a, 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 um, uh, quite a big paper and recommendations to the Greater Glasgow Health Board, which led to a senior post being created for arts and health. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, those, that sense that the, the arts uh, can help people overcome both stigma, but also to stand up and be proud that they've got a mind, they've got sensitivities that, that, that are there, and you know, that instead of seeing a mental ill health problem as entirely just a problem, it has a creative potential to it as well, that can, can open doors for them and improve their mental well-being. Hmm. And so you spoke there about uh, poetry, more specifically in writing. So when did uh, you kind of uh, expand on poetry from first starting with play and, and theatre. How was it that it expanded into writing? Well, I was writing poetry before I was involved with theatre. So. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so I've always written and uh, my, my first, uh, I, and I've written plays as well. So the, the, they were, I was doing that even when I was training as an artist, I was writing poetry. So it quite naturally arose out of that. But I w- Survivor's Poetry Scotland uh, was an offshoot of Survivor's Poetry, which started as a mental health advocacy project in London. Mm. 
and which they were using poetry to raise funds to do with mental health advocacy. So it was, um, it was the early days of the advocacy movement. Right, okay. And so you had uh, worked with it in London and then kind of picked it up and brought it to Scotland as well within the work you were doing with Sydney Centre. Yeah, Unix that's Center. right. And also I connected to an organisation in America called the National Association of Poetry Therapy. And although they use the word poetry, it can be any form of, of creative, write, creative writing. You know, it didn't have to be just, uh, just poetry. Mm. It's part of what's known as bibliotherapy. And when you moved to Scotland, what kind of mental health and arts community existed at the time? Um, well, I, 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 have you heard of Project Ability? Yes, I have. Okay, well, I'm one of the founders of it. I, okay. I started Project Ability in 1981 when I moved to Scotland. Right. And uh, that was when uh, I uh, was connecting with the arts community in Scotland concerned with arts and disability and various uh, mental health and what we uh, what we did was we were, I was working at what was then called the Third Eye Center which is mm. previously the Center for Contemporary Arts I and I was commissioned to interview staff through the Manpower Services Commission for a one-year project and I uh, I interviewed and, and supervised staff for a whole year on that project and I was one of the uh, artists working on the project as well and uh, we coined that phrase projectability uh, as the name of the project and after it, the years finished projectability decided to carry on uh, without me uh, but they ended up forming their own organization and they've been very successful they've got studios in Trongate in Glasgow uh, mm -hmm. but it was that I think projectability was instrumental in bringing together the arts community in in um, in Scotland and in Glasgow particularly and encouraging a real sense of what can we do and how can we work in this field of arts and health. Mm. And so how did you um, find other artists at that time when you were starting Project Ability? Were you brought together by the project initially or was it yourself reaching out to others? It was more myself reaching out to others and I reached out to my mates initially. So. <laughs> people I knew and people I knew who had a background in art therapy or whatever. So I, you know, the people I engaged with initially on the project, one of them was an art therapist. Um, and another one was a man who, uh, Forrest Alexander, who was, who uh, had uh, MS and a friend of her, friend of his who also had MS. They were on the initial uh, founding committee of that. Mm. And a woman named Kay Carmichael, who was the, um, at that time, the, um, principal officers for offenders throughout Strathclyde region and she was one of the instrumental people in establishing the Barlini special unit where I did some work in as well. Okay. And there was an art therapist there named uh, Joyce Liang who was very uh, important in, in uh, promoting the arts and health through Scotland. Mm. And what was it that you uh worked on in the Berlini Special, uh, what was it you meant, sorry? I, I, Berlini Special Unit. Special uh, Unit. I was more of a befriender there, oh, okay. uh, but also encouraging poetry and stuff of some of the prisoners. Um, I was very good friends with Kay Carmichael, who was, and, and also I knew Joyce. And so I, because I'd worked in prisons in, in London, uh, you know, I was welcomed in there and I, I was very part-time just doing things, but also corresponding and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I recently curated an exhibition that's been touring 
that was at the Kelvin Govart Gallery, and it was, it, it was teaching prisoners in Barlini uh, curating skills. Okay. And, and then they curated an exhibition in Barlini prison for the other prisoners, and now it's gone, it's gone a, a mini version of the exhibition went to Kelvin Govart Galleries, and it's moving around Scotland now. Uh, what was interesting is um, designing with them a, um, a, what would you call it, a sort of, um, uh, you get a, you had to, ident you had a little quiz, everybody who came to the exhibition, and they had to identify, like, how many stripes are on Jimmy Boyle's uh, uh, jumper, and, <laughs> but in order to, in order to follow the clues, it was a treasure hunt type thing, they had to read the thing and look at the exhibition. Mm. And then at the end, if you filled it out and got them all right, you got, you got some toiletries, <laughs> which were donated. <laughs> mm. But it was lovely designing that with them, this sort of treasure hunt and working, working with the prisoners on that. They also had a radio station, which I was working on as well. Mm -hmm. And was that uh, run predominantly by the prisoners or was it... Uh... Well, prisoners with support from, um, I can't remember which college is involved. One of the colleges, they have, you know, staff coming in mm. to work with the education staff. Makes sense. And sorry, just to go back to um, projectability there. Um, and you mentioned the Third Eye Centre, and um, I know that that was a main area that you you would meet. But was there other places in Glasgow that you would meet? Uh, for oh yeah, there was the there was the Art Centre uh, down near the motorway. I can't remember what it was called, uh, but there was an art centre there that a lot of people used. Uh, mm -hmm. Jazz musicians, and there were improvisation groups. I established early on a a peer-based improvisation group that did combined drama, music, visual art in an improvised sort of way and we would gather as groups and do a lot of improvisation. Uh, um, and, that that, that, that was a, and there was another one in the East End as well near, um, near um, uh, uh, Glasgow Green as well. There was another art centre there. I, I, and I toured around and met up at various places like that. Mm. Yeah. Was the improvisation group uh, part of projectability, or was that kind of a, a no, branch off? That was a branch off, yeah. yeah. Right, it was okay. more more for my own fun. <laughs> okay. And, and but it was it was a lot of the people who were also working in community arts, and working with projectability. We got we we were having fun with the people we were working with, and we said to each other, "Let's have fun together." Mm. <laughs> Makes sense. And so how do you find that uh, working within all of these places that you've mentioned kind of impacted your um, thoughts and uh, understandings of mental health? Uh, I mean, I think, I think probably, uh, you know, when we talk, you talk about be people on a spectrum, and I think what, what I would say, whether it's an autistic spectrum, whether it's ADHD, whether it's uh, some sort of uh, psychotic, whatever it is, my, my sense is the attitude I have is we're all on it. Mm. All human beings are on it in one way or another. We will have different times, different dips, and, it, and um, it's just part of what we live with. And, and, and all human beings, and animals probably too, you know, live with this. And um, yeah, and sometimes it's acute, and sometimes it's 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 long term and and very 
you know, difficult to, to, to manage. And whether it's, and I, I, my attitude also is there is no difference between physical and mental health. I mean, I work a lot at the moment with cancer patients at the Maggie Cancer Care Center. And, you know, my writing group that I lead there, as well as my movement group, it's all about mental health. You know, it, all of it, what I'm doing there is working with their mental health in order for them to deal and cope with the interventions that they're having to deal with for their physical body. Uh, but so like the, the, the inter, interrelationship between mental and physical health is, is for me, it used to be separate, but now it's, it, it's blended together. Uh, and you, I don't think you can really distinguish the two very often. Makes sense. And so during the time that you worked in uh, Glasgow with Project Ability, mm. how was it that you found people to uh, get involved with the, with the project? The... Uh, that, didn't, that wasn't difficult. Was it not? No. I mean, it, uh, uh, I think we had people queuing up, not wanting good. to get involved. We had a limited budget for that first year. So we could only work with so many people, but there were other people knocking on the door. And, and it had spin-offs of lots of other projects were spinning off that as well, mm -hmm. including the one I mentioned at, at the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, mm. uh, the Out of, Side, Out of Mind exhibition. That arose out of things like project ability developing. Yeah. And so with funding then, you mentioned it briefly there, I know you also said about the Glasgow Health Fund, um, had Greater Glasgow Health Board. Greater yeah. Glasgow Health Board, yeah. So was it easy to gain this type of funding at that time? or? Well, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say funding is ever easy. <laughs> but I, I, um, if you get the right people together, Kay Carmichael, who was a bit of a mentor for me, uh, she brought together some really key people in the health board, in voluntary arts sector as well, around the table at the Glasgow Association for Mental Health, and encouraged them to, to look at this and to develop it. And, uh, and it was through knowing the right people and getting the right people around the same table and talking about it. I'll give you an example of the most successful bit of fundraising for mental health I've ever done, which was at a hospital closure conference in Dumblain Hydro. Uh, What's her name now? Uh, names. <laughs> anyway, she was the director of the watchdog for the, for the health service throughout Scotland. Uh, and I can't remember what that is called. But she had been a consultant psychiatrist as well. And she knew me and was one of the key people who helped set up Survivor's Poetry and helped us get funding initially. Uh, and she said, would I come and work with the hospital closure program at Woody Lee when it was closing. Work with patients, work with staff, with the survivor's poetry team. And we went in for about two or three months doing various things. It culminated in an exhibition, which combined visual art, movement, drama, and we made, did mask making. We did all sorts of things with these people, including interviewing staff and uh, and at the end, she said, now would you come to the conference and do, a, do some presentations with us? And they were big keynote presentations, 40, 50-minute talks about economics and things like that. But we were like the, the sorbet course. 
and they would come on, we'd come on for 10 minutes between a keynote address, and we would have these big masks of patients and staff, just cardboard masks, bigger than life, and we'd hold them in front of our face, and at the back was texts of things people had said, and questions like, uh, statements like, will there be an ice cream van? And think, very simple statements. And then we always finished our little 10 minutes with singing a, a join-in song. I'll give you an example of one. We are crazy, we are mad. And we get them to join in, like in call and repeat. Mm. We are crazy, we are mad. Sometimes good and sometimes bad. Ain't no doctor gonna detain me, cause I got six personalities. Whichever one they lock up, the other five are going to be running amok, and so on. <laughs> and, you know, people would join in with this. We got them stamping their feet at first before they started singing. And then you could see their eyes sort of glaze over. <laughs> what are we singing? <laughs> and Sandra, that's her name, Sandra Grant, um, she came up to me during the interval when they were having a tea break after the first time we performed. She says, Larry, I'm really worried that half the audience are in tears. What are we going to do? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I don't know. You know. We'll just continue performing, which we did. And she invited me to what was known as the top table in, uh, at this big event, in which they were hygienists from senior members of staff from health boards and, and uh, local authorities. And by the end of that meal, I had raised over 300,000 pounds to develop survivor's poetry throughout Scotland. Wow. Uh, and that was primarily through the arts mm. and how That's the it. arts can speak to people's hearts. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> that is brilliant that something like that could, could have such an immediate in impact as well. Yeah, well, it mm. surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so hard, but sometimes there yeah. was a, a little bit of light there. But yeah, well, you know, and I'm, I'm continuously filling in grant applications to Creative Scotland, things like that. And it's like jumping through hoops. Mm. But in the end, I just want to get my begging bowl out and go up to the arts. Say, come on, give us some money. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And so do you think then... Uh, do you think funding maybe hasn't become easier, but there's maybe more avenues to explore then? Uh, there's always more avenues to explore, yeah. Mm. There always are. And, and I think that uh, the, it, per persistence is the key. I mean, it was out of that work of survivor's poetry, which no longer exists, but Lapidus formed, mm -hmm. which is the organization known as uh, uh, Words for Wellbeing organization. And we're, we're about to do a big event in the end of the month with the Scottish government involved. So we're, I'm, my hope is that this sort of work is gradually moving towards mainstream. And, so, and that's been my, one of my goals. Right, okay. And so how did Lapidus uh, form out of Survivors uh, Poetry Scotland then? Uh, how did it form out of it? I think it, uh, I started running a training program for facilitators of, of writing for well-being and creative writing and expressive writing. Uh, and I produced a manual with a, uh, a poet and writer novelist named Janet, pa Janet Paisley, as well as a couple of other people. And we produced this manual and started running training programs for teaching users of mental health services how to facilitate groups you know, of creative type groups. Mm -hmm. And 
And it was out of that that, pe that Lapidus started forming. And it, what happened is that I was, a friend of mine was working in a, in a large hospital near Motherwell uh, named Graham Hartle. And I was working at the Glasgow Association for Mental Health, running the group I mentioned earlier called The Power of Words. And we realized that some of us, there were people around, not that many, who were going into hospitals or prisons and various places, but we had no support, no supervision. Nobody really knew what we were doing. And, uh, but we knew what we were doing. So we started talking to each other. And we said, wouldn't it be good if we could talk to more practitioners who are doing this work? So that, we established what was called the Poetry Healing Project, which was going to be a network of people in Scotland who were practicing uh, some sort of creativity in mental health, prison work, whatever. And at that time, a guy named Robin, can't remember Robin's second name, uh, down in Bristol, who's working with the World Health Organization, and he decided to declare... Uh, declare 1992 as the year of um, uh, poetry and health. And he invited people like myself to a meeting at the Poetry Society in London. And there were about 12 of us there around a big table. And we met several times. And uh, I didn't go, with, uh, Graham went more than me because I had a young family at the time. And uh, after several meetings, we had at one end of the table people involved with survivor's poetry, some of them not long out of mental hospital. At the other end of the table, you had senior consultant psychiatrists and other people like that. And um, we debated and talked and couldn't find a way. What, what do we want to call this? And eventually we came up with the word lapidus, which I can't remember the exact meaning, but it's something like literature and personal development, blah, blah, blah. It's a long anagram, which has lost its, um, the, the story of its origins is sort of in, in somewhere in the archives. <laughs> but that's how it formed. It formed out of, out of a combination of professionals in mental health with survivors of, of, of mental health system coming together. And that, that's how Lapidus began to form. And, uh, and it, so it is, a, it is a broad brush organization that, in, that people can join and just for the benefit of therapeutic writing or reading or storytelling, or they want to do professional training to learn to be a facilitator, they can do that as well within the organization. We're now known as Lapidus International. Glasgow and, and Scotland was, was, Lapidus Scotland was the first um, organization in Scotland, and, and it was the first to establish. Uh, there are now several small groups around the UK and around the world. There are groups in Australia, America as well. And, sorry, so you mentioned the World Health Organization being involved yeah. in that there. So yeah. um, I'm going to make a bit of an assumption here, but is, was that um, something a little unusual that they would be involved in arts and mental health? at that point, or was it something that they'd begun to kind of look more into? I think they had begun to look more into it. Right. They, uh, and, and it was through people like this guy named Robin, who I can't remember his second name, who lives in Bristol. He was a, he was a se senior and he worked, a senior consultant, and he worked for the uh, World Health Organization as well. That's so, and he you had to have individual champions like that who were promoting it, and that, that would open the door more. But yeah, so it, it, yeah, I think the 
it's becoming more mainstream, this, all this work. Yeah. So with... Uh, <laughs> and another champion, which uh, is, uh, is Sir Kenneth Kalman, mm -hmm. who was the chief medical officer for Scotland and then for England and Wales. And he helped set up in Durham University um, the, what's it called now, the Center for Arts and Humanities and Medicine. And uh, he's now back in, in, in Scotland, and he's, he was the um, um, rector for Glasgow University. And he's, done, he's just done a, a master's in literature <laughs> and written another book. Oh, wow. But he's been a mentor for me, and he helped me with my Arts on Prescription project. And he also helped me with a previous project called Better Health for Men. Mm. And that was, uh, or Men, Emotions and Relationships. And that was probably the, uh, in terms of my drama skills, the most dramatic thing I've ever done. <laughs> oh, really? In, in what sense? Well, uh, I've, I'm the, a bit of a maverick and I've never worn a suit in my life. Well, I ended up getting, I was working in the Gorbals. As, and at one time during the Gorbals, I was running a men's group for addicts. And I wanted, went to what was then called the Scottish Health Education Group in Edinburgh to get some information on men's health, as well as see if they might give me some money for what I was doing. And they said to me, we could give you 50 leaflets on women's health. We can't give you one on men's health. Uh, and no, we can't give you any money. You need to go to your local health board. So I went away with my tail between my legs. And, uh, but then I got a phone call the following day and asked me, would you do some research for us and find out what needs to be published about men's health? And from there, I set up eight different ginger groups all over Scotland, small groups where I invited heads of the police department, the fires, head of industry, head teachers, anybody involved in the community to a roundtable meeting. And I wore a suit and tie. <laughs> and I played the role. <laughs> People would call me doctor, and I've never been a doctor in my life. <laughs> And I'd it depended on, on which group I was working with, whether I called it Better Health for Men or whether I called it Men, Emotions and Relationships. So it was more social work and that sort of thing than it was Men, Emotions and Relationship. But it was more like police and fire departments and things like that. It became something else. So it, I used a different name. And that, that project I, I did for about three years and again published a 200-page recommendations which were incorporated. There's lots more information now about men's health around. Um, so it was a fascinating piece of work. Mm. And why did you choose to uh, use the two different titles for the different groups of, of people? Um, because of the stigma right. around mental health. And where you call it men, emotions and relationships, you're focusing on the issue of stigma. Mm. Whereas if you call it better health for men, it's a much a generic term and you, know, you can bring in the mental health stuff, sneak it in. Yeah, that's interesting. And so how did you manage to to find people to come along to to the men's, uh, the Better Health for Men, sorry, or uh, men's... The roundtable meetings. Groups? Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I just used my networks. Right. You know, I would, I would, you know, I, I've done some training work in Aberdeen, for example. I've worked for the Council for Voluntary Services up there and did some training for staff. 
I would just, wherever I went, I talked to local people. And, and so who knows who? And, and gradually, invitations would go out to mm. a meeting. And then at the meeting, sometimes I would get 20 or 30 people. A lot of people are interested in something new, so they'll, they'll come along. But then by the end of the meeting, I would ask people, who wants to really form an ongoing group here that really wants to look in depth at these issues? Scoot your chair forward. And so you end up with a group. And then once that group scoots the chair forward, they can get out diaries, they can arrange meetings, etc. Mm. Uh, but I use my drama skills in those situations. I would often do things that would involve some interaction, some playfulness, uh, so that, uh, and I brought poetry into it so as a way of engaging them. Mm-hmm. And, and it varied, you know, some of the, one project went on for years because uh, there was a guy who was a recently retired head teacher in Inverness, uh, William Weatherspoon, and, and he just loved the project. And we got, that, that project was very successful and, we, and it started working in Dunray and industry and all sorts of things with men. Yeah. So, and it varied, you needed your champions, you needed a local person who would then who knew the networks locally. So I relied on establishing somebody that I knew. Uh, and because of my work at that time, doing survivor's poetry work and things like that, it, it meant that I could connect quite easily with different people. And so just to go back to the poetry and the writing groups that you, yeah. you worked in, what were the key messages that you were trying to get across to the participants of the groups? I have a little precept that I often use, and it probably incorporates the key message, which is whatever you write is right, you can't write the wrong thing. And, and, sorry, and, and, and just that encouragement to people to just let their pen do the work. In a, and don't try and think too much about what's right, you know, to really just get down your feelings, your thoughts, and first thoughts are best thoughts. If it's... If it's um, if it's frightening, you know, write it down. And just, and just by really emphasizing the therapeutic potential of that way of working. And I use quotes from people like Anne Frank, who would write in her journals, and she would write something like, if I write about it, my confidence comes back. I feel much more alive. Yeah. So, and I would quote the research as well on this. There's been a lot of research that, that verifies this work is beneficial. And, and, and so, yeah, and I've, as I've described earlier, you know, working with, uh, with people who have mental health problems or, or a diagnosis or whatever, they know better than I do. So I, largely, I follow their lead. I'm, I'm there to offer a suggestion. Sometimes I offer two or three suggestions, and I say, you can choose which one you want to try. But there, I said, there's always another one, and that's the one that's inside you that needs to come out now. Mm. And I often use you know, people to give internalizing, listening to themselves. What is alive in me right now? What needs to come out? What needs to be expressed now? And so were they some of the similar messages that you would use within theater groups as well and the, and the play groups? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, usually the game itself would emerge. Something would emerge out of the game. So there's a way of, if you play a game, it doesn't even matter. It could be a game of table tennis. It doesn't matter what the game is. Once you're playing it, 
you've, you start noticing your style and their style. And then if you talk about it or share something after the playing the game, you begin to notice, you'll ask a question like, that's the way you play that game. Do you play that game similarly in other things? Is that way you relate to your friends? You know, so that the way you do something in a safe situation creatively can reflect other areas of your life and getting people to begin to see that and recognize that. That's interesting. And were people usually, after playing a game, open to applying to, to other areas or did that take a little bit of time and uh, maybe persistence in some cases? <laughs> Probably. I mean, it, I, I would say that, you know, 50% of the time in a, in a situation, I, in a group where I'm leading it, is in processing what's come up. You know, it, it's like people will do the, do the exercise of the writing, but then you know, allow time to digest, time to look at it, time to share it, and to feel where is it going. I always give people suggestions, you know, let's say this group is meeting once a week. I give them things to try at home. I encourage them to email me or whatever, something they've written, so I, and which I comment on. Mm. You know, so it's like trying, how do you sustain it from one week to another, is how you begin to make the changes. Interesting. And so, did you find that there was any stories of, I mean, I'm sure there will be umpteen stories of success, however that may be for each participant, but was there anything that you seemed to, uh, that you found reoccurred within the play groups, within the uh, theatre as well as the writing? I think the, the reoccurrence that I've, uh, I've already mentioned to you is that people are surprised at the power of their own expression. And, uh, and, and whenever it comes out, like whether it's they burst out laughing or crying or whatever, uh, that surprise is a key to me as facilitator to home in on that mm. and to encourage that. Because it, usually that's where the power is. Yeah. And uh, what? Yeah. Sorry, Kyra. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I yeah. go. You so, you know, with with all these groups, you, I, I, I'm always surprised. I never know what to expect. I have plans. I will go in with plans, but sometimes I abandon them because I'm listening to a conversation as I arrive, informal conversation, and somebody's just been sectioned. Somebody's just got a diagnosis, uh, you know, and that becomes much more the topic. And I will create a prompt out of that, a way in out of that. So it, it, I will abandon my plans if necessary. Even though I spend time thinking about it and planning what I'm going to do, I often don't do what I plan. Best laid plans. <laughs> yes. And what were some of the challenges that you've faced over the years with, uh, with the mental health and that? Lots. I, I mean, I mean, I could enumerate them. Sometimes people leaving mm. in the middle of a group, and this is why I've really emphasized co-facilitation of some of these groups. And I've trained people in co-facilitation and peer mentoring as well. Um, you know, it, and also, how do you build safeguards within the context of that you're working? So like I often work in situations where I know there's some backup and support. Uh, 
I mean, some of the typical challenges, which are the person who's, who's uh, over-talking, over-communicating, it's a classic one, and how to interrupt that, and, and how to build a relationship so it's, I can do it without, without um, disturbing that person's flow, you know, and, and, and like shifting it from, that's fine, David, we've heard enough of that, but why don't you get it down on paper now, do some writing, you know, focus on it. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges. I mean, uh, uh, and you never know what's going to come up. And sometimes you will offer a very general prompt for people, and it stimulates, and, and, and you, you re-traumatize. People start, well, they, I don't re-traumatize, they re-traumatize themselves. They, they step into something, and they're surprised uh, by that re-traumatization. And then you've got to see that and recognize it and encourage them to get support for it as well if they get re-traumatized because however uh, neutral your uh, suggestions and ideas are as a facilitator you don't know what you're going to trigger mm. and and that's the that's the risk but it's also I wouldn't want that any other way I the risks are important to, to try and get in there with people yeah. and some people it's inappropriate to be in a group it's better to do some one-to-one -one work first with somebody. And that's, I've done quite a lot of one-to-one -one with people before they've joined a group. Because uh, so, yeah, some people just don't fit in with the group. And how did your work impact you and your mental health and well-being, if, if you found it has? Uh, it keeps me sane. I, but uh, frankly, I, I've been insane all my life, so... <laughs> I'm, uh, it, it helps me manage my insanity, manage my madness. Uh, one of our, uh, our performance group in Survivor's Poetry, um, we wore black shirts. We went to conferences and things like that. We wore black shirts with gold letters on them. And on the gold letters was a phrase, glad to be mad. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I, it's, uh, I think keeping it light uh, has sustained it I but also I I get a lot of support from friends I, I, I do peer counseling so I have somebody I meet with every week and I have people that I peer peer supervise peer lead groups with we debrief after a session uh, so yeah and I'm also a facilitator of what's called the work that reconnects which uses a lot of arts activities and I ran training courses for facilitators in that okay and so that's for... Um, that's for activists. For the, right, okay. For activists. Like, if you've heard of Extinction Rebellion, things like that. It's for people involved with activism. Oh, wow. Uh, and, it, and it's supporting them in terms of so they don't burn out, basically. Uh, and it's a process developed by a woman named Joanna Macy, who I trained with as well uh, many years ago. And it's called The Great Turning of the Work That Reconnects. And it looks at how do we... Uh, we start with gratitude and we move on to what we call honoring the pain we feel for the world uh, and really recognizing that pain. And a lot of activists just bypass that. Uh, they don't allow themselves to express feeling. They're so strident, they just get on with it. But it's really taking that pause and allowing that pause in to really honor what do you feel for the world, what, what causes you fear, hatred, pain, whatever. And then moving on to try and seeing it differently, seeing with new eyes, 
understanding systems theory, things like that. And then the final phrase comes from Buddhism, going forth. What is my next small step to go forth with? And, and what Joanna always emphasized was never do this alone. She's now in her 90s and still teaching. She's an amazing woman. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was just on a mm. webinar with her a couple of days ago. That's really interesting. And so within that, then, did you, do you use art to connect oh, with yeah. the activists? Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. And a lot it... of different... Like the one example is we do a, an exercise called Honouring Our Ancestors, where we have a piece of music playing. Have you heard of the piece of music? Um, I think it's called Silent. It's a piece that goes on for eight hours, mm -hmm. and it's very slow. And what we do is we, uh, it's a guide, like a guided walking meditation. You get people walking backwards and you're, and you're walking backwards through time. First into your own, the, you know, what, where you were this morning, so on, back to when you were a child, your parents, their parents, your grandparents, right back to the savannah when you were in the desert and you're just coming out of the jungle. And we pause there. And sometimes we've gone back further. We did one recently honoring the animal ancestors, where we started play-acting and role-playing, being different animals. But then from there, you walk forward using movements and the images of gathering, gathering the gifts of your ancestors. Remember, what gifts are you carrying in your body, in your heart, in your mind, from the ancestors? And you walk forward gathering them as the music is playing. And then at the end, you get into small groups and share. You know, and it's a very creative process. We do another exercise called uh, Ceremony of All Beings, and where you make masks and things like this of your favorite being, <laughs> of bears or whatever. <laughs> and then you, you speak as if you are them and what you need and that sort of thing. That's a sort of more drama type exercise. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Buddhism, and is this, so is this stemmed from an idea of spirituality and connection with... Well, uh, Joanna was a, uh, she was a, a systems theory scholar, and she did her PhD on Buddhism and systems theory. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she was an activist in the anti-nuclear movement in the, in the 70s, and still, and, but she always emphasized never do it alone, so she set up what was called action study groups, and her, like her passion was for looking at how do we deal with nuclear waste. And uh, she did a whole lot of work on that. Uh, oh. That's really interesting as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you think of activists and what happens if they burn out, mm. they end up often having mental health problems. Mm -hmm. So that whole work of what I call the work that reconnects I see as preventative mental health work. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of creativity and arts activities within that. We have a website, we have lots of, um, we're creating new, new ways of working all the time, and new, new structures. A lot of storytelling in it, poetry, songs, dance. So these next questions that I've got here are a little bit more um, general. Um, yeah, sure. So this one here is, so why do you think it's important that mental health is covered in art? Um, I know we've kind of touched on that throughout, but if there was something specific you would like to say to that? Um, I think it lightens things. 
And there, you know, people's mental health is a really serious thing, you know, and, and, uh, and I think it lightens, it's fun, uh, it's engaging, uh, and I think arts, arts sort of, uh, it's a bit like, you know, if you just eat food and you don't add any seasoning to it, it's nourishing, it'll nourish you, but the seasoning gives it, mm, je ne sais quoi, and that extra bit, and I think the arts can do that as well. Mm. Um, and whether, the, whether that's focusing on mental health or focusing on somebody who's terminally ill and dying. I work a lot with death at the moment. I started a group called Dialogue, where people get together and talk and tell stories about death and dying. It could be start telling funeral stories, encouraging people to write their own eulogies, their own epitaphs. And we just started a small group in Glasgow called Dialogue, and it's now spawned, I think, 14 different groups all over the UK, just by word of mouth. Mm. And, and again, that, that sense of, of, of people looking at a taboo of talking and really expressing feelings around death. Uh, mm. it, there's the, the, the death cafe movement, but this is actually different because we have an intimacy about it. There's only eight people in a group and we meet regularly about once a month. We share between times, think articles, stories. And uh, I've been in this group since uh, 2011. So we've been meeting that long. And, you know, there are now groups all over. Mm. Yeah. And so also as well, just to flip that question on its head, what do you think the arts get from mental health and the incorporation of the two, the arts community more specifically? Well, I mean, to be quite blunt about it, uh, jobs. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer, a poet. Mm -hmm. I've earned bits of money as a writer. I even got a, a play uh, in the National Theatre years ago. Uh, but, you know, if I added up all the money I've earned from arts, I'd never earn a living. Uh, but I think the arts deserve to be, you know, we deserve to be employed to share our art with people more widely and get paid for it. Mm. So, yeah, the, quite bluntly, it's, it's to do with earning a living. Makes sense. And who's most likely... But also, it's oh, earning a living, but it's also offering a service, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, a lot of times people see, uh, you know, not all art, but a lot of art forms, like visual art and things like that, it's done quite alone. And this, this uh, sharing, and it does stimulate creativity. By interacting with others in my writing work, I... People think of writing as alone, but by interacting with others, it stimulates my own writing. So it's collaboration, creative exchanges with people, mm. and opening new doors that I didn't expect to be there. Um, who, is, who do you think is most likely to be impacted in a positive way through attending art events that you put who? on? Yeah, that, that you've put on yourself. Uh, so. That's a bit of a too general a question. I mean, it. it um, uh, I mean, there isn't anybody specific. I mean, I work with all sorts of people, and mm. uh, and you know, whether we're all facing death, we all face illness of one sort or another. Um, we're all going to get old. I'm getting older, uh, so it's like. Anybody can benefit from the arts mm. uh, and uh, you know what I offer and what other you know p 
friends that are artists and working in this field offer. Uh, I don't think there is a specific who to that question. I mean, it is anybody can benefit from it. Mm. It's why we're doing with the Scottish government. We're campaigning to we're so, we did a mapping project throughout Scotland last year, uh, looking at words for well-being throughout Scotland and where they're active, and we're looking at training librarians, care workers, carers in in this sort of work. And we're we got yeah. Uh, I, my sense is that it's general public, gen anybody. Mm. That makes sense. How do you feel that arts has contributed to how mental health is being viewed throughout Scotland? I think the the uh, I'm thinking about some of the things that have come out of the See Me campaign, as well as Luminate, another festival. I think have contributed a lot to uh, the arts shaping and seeing it differently mm. um, and seeing it not just within a medical model at all but opening it out to a more community model and a more community arts model uh, and uh, yeah just yeah that's yeah. and I know there you spoke about words for well-being and working with the Scottish government and libraries across Scotland and I know previously you mentioned about some of the work that you're doing at the moment but how would you like to see uh, the relationship between mental health and arts in Scotland progress in the next five to ten years? Uh, how would I like to see them progress? Uh, well, I certainly uh, would like it to see the work that I've been doing and similar people in my field, whether in whatever art form, uh, I'd like to see it acknowledged as more a mainstream provision. Uh, that uh, and accessible to everyone, whether it's online or or through face-to-face -face meetings, workshops, etc. Seeing it much more, uh, I think one of my one of the research I did on arts on prescription was modelled on exercise on prescription. Now, exercise on prescription is well researched, well founded, and it's and it's spread throughout. You know, a lot of most places offer it now. Why not the arts? And, and, and I think they are moving in that direction, but not enough yet. And I think the arts could, uh, you know, not everybody, you know, everybody can benefit from exercise, of course, but I think everybody can benefit from participation in the arts as well. Mm. Why do you think it's that, uh, that for some reason we're more willing to accept exercise and, and not the arts as a mainstream uh, form? That's back to the stigma, isn't it? It's still mm. there. Mm. It's still there. You know, people will say, oh, yeah, I'll go out for a run, uh, but I don't want to write poetry about what's going on inside my heart. It's still the feeling of, I don't want to be seen. Mm. I wrote a poem, about, a poem once time called Being Seen, and which was a partly about stigma and about hiding. So you think you see me? You can't see me, not really. I only pretend. I'm not really here. And it goes on like that. And, um, and we do a lot of pretending to be present. We don't want to be seen in our vulnerability. And, and somehow the shift I'd like to see is that we shift from hiding our vulnerability to recognizing that our vulnerability is one of our strengths. Mm. And the arts are partly 
related to people's vulnerability. When they open up, they, you, you can't create anything without opening. 